Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. All right, so we're starting a new sermon series, and we'll be in this for several weeks. And so if you haven't turned open your Bibles yet or turned on your Bibles, depending on what Bible platform you're using, we'll be in Matthew chapter 12. But this series is called Stories. And really, we're going to cover various parables of Jesus. Parables meaning the stories, symbolisms, these things that Jesus taught using important truths. And so what we're going to look at through these weeks are different stories, parables of Jesus. It's interesting because he'd oftentimes speak in parables that were unclear to those listening, but then he would go and very many many times clarify the meaning to his own disciples. And so we have the benefit now of looking back and seeing in perfect clarity by way of the Holy Spirit to see what Jesus was saying. This one is pretty clear. And so we're really going to dig into this famously quoted verse Matthew 12, 25, that Jesus says, as Jasmine read. But as I was just thinking about this, one of the most popular qu- quotes come from Abraham Lincoln. You guys familiar with this? 1858, in Illinois, at the Republican State Convention, he gave a speech really aimed at Senator Douglas. See, Senator Douglas was trying to have a middle ground approach when it came to slavery. Kind of, you got, got a little bit of both ways and trying to play a middle ground, and so Abraham Lincoln then said in his speech, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. In other words, he was saying, pick your sides because you cannot have it both ways. With both ways being completely contradictory and in complete combat with one another. You can't have it both ways. It's interesting because I I believe, actually, and like many people do today, Abraham Lincoln really nailed the intention that Jesus had when he said this in the first place. And that's what we're going to dig into this morning. In just a little context, in Matthew 12, you start in verse 22, you see this demon-possessed man was, was brought out, and this man wasn't able to speak, and he was blind. And it says Jesus healed him. And so the man could now speak and see. And it's noted that the crowds were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? It's noteworthy. And this is really what we're going to spend the next two hours together digging into. Son of David. It says they were literally beside themselves. Not convinced, but began to consider the possibility of Jesus being the son of David, meaning the Messiah. The one that the whole Old Testament points to, this coming King, Messiah, Savior, Christ. Could this be him? That's what they're asking. And so, Usually as we think about what Jesus has done and these miraculous things that he did, like healings here, we use the term miracles. Because they were miraculous, these things that Jesus did. But it's interesting that the Bible actually uses the word more of sign. Sign. A sign obviously gives information about or directions to something or someone. A sign. It says something. 
These signs that Jesus showed were saying something about Jesus. And what we're going to keep asking this morning is, what were they saying? What were these signs, miracles, that Jesus showed, what were they saying about Jesus? It seems like the crowds were starting to catch on that these signs were strikingly similar to what Scripture said would be the signs of the Savior, the miracles of the Messiah, these prophecies. And as the people were taking notice, so were the Pharisees. Which brings us to verse 24. It says, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, the man drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. It's interesting, the term Beelzebul reaches way back to what we see in 2 Kings verse 1, or chapter 1 verse 2, from the word Beelzebub, meaning Lord of the Flies. Or Lord of Flies. Beelzebub was worshipped as a Philistine god. And over time, the Jews would twist the name Beelzebub to Beelzebul, meaning Lord of Dung. Wasn't super popular god, right? Lord of Dung. Know about you? I could refuse and be okay with not having a title close to that. Lord of Dung, Beelzebul. Here the Pharisees were using this title as type of a synonym for Satan. So put it another way, they're saying, this man is not showing signs of the Savior. These are signs of Satan. And it's crazy, I was thinking about this, it's crazy the excuses that people come up with to try to explain away who Jesus is. It hasn't changed. Here, the Pharisees were literally seeing the scriptures come alive right in front of their eyes through Jesus. But they're also seeing the crowds. Seeing the crowds seemingly begin to start believing that Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah. So the question has to be answered. What was Jesus' signs showing? And just to be clear, it's not up for debate that Jesus did and had miraculous moments. He did miraculous things. He did wonders. He did things that were unexplainable. That is not up for debate. Just to be clear. Josephus was a first century Jewish priest, scholar, and historian. So at best, he was neutral about Jesus. He was just documenting events. And his writings are still used in universities today. And he notes about Jesus that Jesus performed amazing deeds. You got the Jewish Talmud, who was very much, his writings were very much anti-Jesus. But they note that Jesus practiced sorcery. The Pharisees says these signs that he was doing were satanic. So let's be clear, it's not for debate that Jesus did miracles. It's definitely not for debate that Jesus was a person. That's just crazy. If we use the same measurements that we do for any other historical figure. So we have to come to grips that Jesus was a person and he did miracles. But what were these signs pointing to is the question we have to answer this morning. 
And this is interesting. In a rare occasion, Jesus actually takes time to explain exactly why their accusations were absurd. And I personally like that he uses three points in the parable. True preacher fashion. In verse 25, he says, it says, knowing their thoughts. Let me pause there. Let that sink in for a minute. Knowing their thoughts. He told them every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And just practically, we know this is true. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. Like, this doesn't even need explanation. We can look at throughout histories and nations that are divided crumble. We can look in right now and see houses that are divided crumble. Marriages that are divided crumble. So this doesn't even need explaining. We know this is true, and this is the point why Jesus says it. This is true everywhere of all time. But then he gives three points. Verse 26. He says, let me make this practical. He says, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. Then how will his kingdom stand? In other words, it can't. If you're at war with each other, you are crumbling, combating, demolishing yourself. Point two he makes, basically says, okay, let's follow what you're saying here. He says this in verse 27. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. In other words, your followers, when they drive out demons, what's the source of their power? How do you know? It's obviously, you're saying they're from God. So let that be your judge. Let that be your answer. But then the third point he makes. Verse 28, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so the question is, who is the source behind Jesus' signs? That's what we're asking here. Number one, is it satanic? Or is it the Spirit of God? And that's the only two options we have. That's it. It's not for debate that he was a person and he did miracles. The way we have to answer is, were they satanic in origin? Or were they from the Spirit of God? During the first century and still today in the 21st century, people are saying a lot of different things about who Jesus is. We know this is true. Throughout history, people are confused about who Jesus is. And the signs answer actually who he is. But things that are often said is that he's a man with high morals. He's a good teacher, maybe a revolutionary, maybe one of the prophets. These are things that are commonly said. Is that true? What did Jesus say about himself? Probably a good place to start. In Luke 4, we see that it says, as usual, Jesus would enter the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and a scroll was handed to him from the prophet Isaiah. It says, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive, captives and recovery to the sight to the blind and to set free the oppressed to proclaim the Lord, 
the year of the Lord's favor. After he reads it, he sits down. He says, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Interesting, this scripture, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, as we know in our Bibles, was one of the prophecies, signs, that you'll know the Messiah. He says, today, in your presence, this has been fulfilled. Means filled full, meaning you see it like you do a coloring book. You see it in full picture, standing before you. And you remember the account that in John 4 that Jesus was traveling through Samaria and has this encounter with this Samaritan woman at the well. And this woman is trying to dodge the rest of the crowds and goes there in the heat of the day and Jesus was there. And they have this conversation about water and then it turns to worship and how do we know where to worship. And she says to Jesus, we'll know, the, we'll know all these things when the Messiah comes and tells us. And Jesus replies to her. He says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. You don't have to wait. I'm the Messiah. Now, one could say, well, it's easy for someone to claim to be who they are themselves. That's easy. But the point is, he made very clear who he was. And his signs solidified it, validated it. His signs showed who he said he was, which aligned with Scripture. So what do these signs say about Jesus? This is interesting because John the Baptist had the same question. John the Baptist had disciples, and as you know, John was arrested. And in prison, it says in Matthew 11, he sent his disciples to ask a question of Jesus. He says, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? He's asking specifically, are you the Messiah? That's what he's asking. And Jesus doesn't say yes or no. Jesus says, go and report. He tells this to his disciples, John's disciples. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. In other words, what does my words and ways show and say. When Jesus' disciples, or when Jesus told John's disciples this, there's no doubt their memories would have been connected to various passages, but specifically like the one found in Isaiah chapter 35. Verses 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Again, one of the prophecies that will show the Messiah. The Messiah will do these things. So Jesus didn't tell him, yes, I'm he. He says, what does the scripture say? What do you see and hear? You validate it. And the point is, Jesus' signs and what Jesus said were in unity verifying his identity and authority. Like, think about this, his identity. When he fed the 5,000 in John 6, 
Verse 14, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And what happens? He goes off, Jesus goes off, and the next day, the crowds chase him. And he confronts him again in John 6, 26. He says, truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the sign, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. In other words, like many of us do, we want the gift more than the giver. You see, you're not coming to me because you're convinced by the sign you saw that I'm the Messiah to come. You just want another free meal. And he says to him, I am the bread of life. His signs would point to his identity. He says, you're seeking the bread, you're seeking the wrong thing. I am the bread of life. In John chapter 11, you see this man named Lazarus had died. And it says it was about four days later when Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, meaning Lazarus was dead, dead, right? D-E-D dead. You know what I'm talking about? Dead. To words. They were like, Jesus, just don't worry about it. He's dead. But Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, if you'd been here sooner, which if you go back, he actually delayed his coming. Martha said, if you'd been here sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. But he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he proceeds to raise Lazarus from the dead. The sign pointed to who he is. And because who he is, his identity means he has authority. And we see the authority. We see the authority over the dead. He brought the dead back to life. We see the authority over the storms, calming them by just the words he spoke. And we see authority over the demons, even the ruler of the demons. Going back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. He goes on to prove this point. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house, meaning the strong man is this rule of the demons, but yet I have tied up and bound the strong man. So I can go in and plunder everything I want because it's no longer him who has authority, but I have it. It's mine. I have the authority. In other words, Satan is not the source of his strength because he has overcome Satan. You know the Matthew 28, we quoted a lot. But the days after Jesus' own resurrection, he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority means complete authority. There's no other authority higher than the authority I have to do what I want and what I will. It's all mine. So go back to the question at hand is, who do you say Jesus is? Jesus asked his disciples in Mark chapter 8. He comes to him and says, who do people say that I am? 
disciples answered, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. In other words, people are saying a lot of different things, a lot of confusion, don't really know. Then he turns to them and says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And this is the question that everyone has to answer and will answer one day. Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter, as we know, who speaks first and foremost, he's been called the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, right? He oftentimes gets it wrong, but this time he nails it. He says, you are the Messiah, definitively, no doubt. What other people say doesn't matter because I know, because I've heard and I've seen that you are the Messiah. And Peter would go on to stake his life because he knew that Jesus is the Messiah. See, the Pharisees were saying that Jesus is a liar, but what do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? Because we have only but two choices. Either Jesus was a lying lunatic or Jesus is Lord. It's the only two questions we got. You know my favorite C.S. Lewis quote, because I quote it all the time, because I can't say it better, to be honest. C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. Saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You must make your choice. Either he's a lunatic and a liar or he's Lord and Savior. And this goes back to what he says is true. Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. No city or house divided against itself will stand. The point is here, it would be irrational and impossible for Jesus' signs to say anything close with some kind of satanic alignment. Meaning if that isn't just incredibly impossible, means that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the King who's ruling and reigning right now over everything. But you must make your choice. And we see this. We see in Acts chapter 1, Jesus walked the earth for another 40 days, 4-0, after his resurrection. In Acts 1, verse 9, it just simply says, after he said this, after this was being in verse 8, 
go and be my witnesses. After he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, the crowd around watching. He was taken up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. Yeah, I would too, right? Like, what in the world just happened? It says, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up to heaven? Which I would have said, why do you think? When's the last time you've seen someone float up in there? But the point was, they were making this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Meaning, he's going to come again. Physically, bodily, it's going to look different. But he hasn't come yet. And this is where, if we get this straight, it changes absolutely everything. Because right now, as Hebrews 8, verse 1 says, Jesus is on the throne. It says, speaking about Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Right now, right now, Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. Did you guys miss that? Right now. Like, man, if we can let the gravity of that sink in, it will change your Monday. Just does. It's amazing as Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, he was the first Christian martyr, just strictly killed because of his confession that Jesus is Lord. But it says, as he was in the midst of being stoned to death, it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Right now, ruling and reigning, Jesus is king. But one day he will return. And this is where I really want us to let this sink in. We see in Revelation, chapter 19, we have this picture of what Jesus will look like as best as it can be described when he does return one day. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen, and a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on the robe and on his thigh, the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is Jesus. So I don't know what you think of when you think of Jesus. This is Jesus. I think so many still have him stuck as some kind of mild, meek, and weak, frail human. Our king is the conqueror. He's a conquering king who fights for his people. Man, if you heard that, there'd be a lot more amens in here. If you're preaching my face off. Sorry. 
You do as the Spirit leads. If we get this right, you want to see a bold faith? How could you not have a bold faith when you know that Jesus himself is fighting for you, the King of kings, Lord of lords, fully on authority? Think on this. When the Bible says, the Lord will fight for you. When the Bible says, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you. When the Bible says, do not fear, I am with you. Do not be afraid, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. When the Bible says, the Lord is my stronghold of my life, who should I dread? When the Bible says, even when I go through the darkest valley, I will feel no danger because you are with me. When the Bible says, be courageous, I have conquered the world. He's talking about this Jesus, and he's talking to you. This is a Jesus who is for those who are for him. And this is what he says here in Matthew 12. Closing in verse 30, he says this. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. You must make your choice. And a non-choice is a choice. Every moment that he's given us is by his grace to know him but to be known by him. And when I hear this, man, I, I think back in my early Christian walk. Man, I, was, I knew I was saved by grace. I knew the gospel. I believed it. But I was struggling. And I was still just ingrained with a lot of lifestyle issues, really sin stuff that I had a hard time shaking. And really, I justified some of it, if I'm honest. I didn't like it, but man, we could justify some crazy things. Especially when you're not in the Bible like you're supposed to be, like we should be. But then one Bible study, I came to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3.16, Jesus says this. He says, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I don't have time to really dig into what this means, but basically he's saying worthless. It's worthless. The way I took it almost 20 years ago is my lukewarm relationship. I was confessing, yeah, Jesus is king. Jesus is the Lord of my life. But the way I was living was something completely different. And this, by the Spirit of God, brought swift conviction to my life, meaning I saw it, I hated it, I couldn't do it any longer. But this is what it means, anyone who's not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters, meaning if Jesus is king, he is worthy of all your devotion, all of who you are, all of what you have, every time, moment, possession, people, it's all his because he's worthy of it, and he's faithful and trustworthy. Full surrender. Again, going back to what Abraham Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He's saying, pick your side. You can't have it both ways. And Jesus is saying, pick your side. You can't have it both ways. Either he's Lord or he's a liar. You must make your choice. I would ask, more bluntly, are you a Pharisee or are you a follower? You must make your choice. 
Again, C.S. Lewis, you can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord God. Jesus says, whoever, that's a lot of people, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Basically, you've made your choice. But this is the good news. Because you have to know the bad news to receive the good news or else it's just news, right? Bad news is what makes good news good. The bad news is whoever does not believe is condemned. You picked your side. You didn't want Jesus now. You won't get Jesus in eternity or now. You don't want to worship him now. Why would you want to worship him forever? But whoever believes... Whoever believes that Jesus is who he said he was, lived a perfect life to pay the price for our sin that we couldn't pay, died the death that we deserved, conquered death, rose again on the third day, now rule and reigns on behalf of everyone who believes in him, has eternal life. This is the good news. It's worthy of clapping over. It's worthy of giving your life over. I'm just concerned as we come into just areas like this. We're so concerned about what other people think and how I'm going to respond. Imagine you go into Monday morning and you're called to confess Jesus for the sake of your job. We can't celebrate Jesus together in the midst of believers. I'm not trying to shame anybody here. This is true. If we really believe Jesus is Lord, it translates into every aspect of your life. You don't care about losing your job. You're going to live for Jesus first. You don't care about the safety of your family. You care for them, protect them, and lead them, but they're Jesus' family. I'm telling you, this verse wrecked me this week as I was focusing on who Jesus is now because I, like many of you, deal with anxiety and fear. And I'm tired of being scared of everything. You know how I combat that? Focusing on the rider on the white horse who's actively fighting on our behalf. He says, vengeance is mine. He also says, you're a child of his. He's a good father. I don't know how that lands on you guys this morning. But I'm trusting the Spirit just make it alive in each of our hearts. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. His signs say that he was, in fact, the Savior, the one who's worthy of our worship and worthy of our life. So what do you say today? Follow his feet as Lord and God, or you can call him a lunatic and a liar. You must make your choice. But I know the Spirit's working. So some of us, that choice is for the first time I see it. I see that when Jesus said on his cross, to Telestai, meaning it is finished, paid in full, that I know what that means now. That he paid the price for my sin forever, so that everyone who believes in him has life the moment of belief and lasts forever. For some, just we realize that we've been living a certain way. We're following Jesus, kind of. Definitely saved by grace, but struggling with sin. That's where we lean on the Lord's strength to overcome the sin because he's the one who's overcome the world. And so maybe it's repentance and come back from strain. Maybe for some, it's like me, who deals with anxiety, fear. Maybe it's finally for you just see that that's really you trying to control things that you can't control. That was me. 
I'm trying to control things I can't control. Yes, I'm called to live a certain way and to lead and to be, use my gifts and talents and abilities to glorify God and trust Him in it. But man, I'm trying to control things and it's tiring. Maybe for you it's time to surrender those things. I don't know what God's doing in your life. I'm trusting you doing something. I'm trusting you that you're going to respond to what he's doing in this moment. And let this moment carry you throughout your Sunday, Monday, and through the rest of your life. I'm praying that this is a moment that just propels us into a life of bold faith because we know who Jesus is. Not was, is, and is to come. I could say it for all day. I'm going to have to wrap it up. I'm going to invite our band back up. And what we're going to do, we do every Sunday, we sing another response song. But I just want to give us the freedom to respond as the Lord leads you. Because many will stand and sing and worship as a right response. Some of us need to just sit and pray and settle some things between us and God that God's laying on your heart right now. So I encourage you to respond how God is leading you. We'll have a prayer team to the side. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you. You're not alone in this walk and following Jesus, nor were you meant to be. But you respond to what God's doing in this moment right now. That's what we're going to do. The band's going to come back up. I'm going to pray for us. And then they're going to sing. I'm just calling us to respond, to be sensitive to the Lord's leading And just to do what he's calling us to do in this moment. And just see what God does with that as we surrender fully everything to him. Because he's worthy of it. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for being the King of kings and Lord of lords and yet a good father. We thank you. And the way that you proved your own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that whoever believes has eternal life. And so for those of us who do believe, Father, we just ask that you reignite the love that we had at first for you. Fan the flames of the love and devotion that we have for you. Our trust in you, our faith in you alone. And for those who have been skeptical, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you break through the blindness and hardness of heart and help them see the beautiful gospel good news that you are the Savior who paid the price for their sin so that they can live with you, be brought from death to life, and be secure in you for eternity, starting this moment. Lord, rescue us from the fears and anxieties Bring us back from our strain and paths that we've chose to go down. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, just move in this place, in this moment, in the fan of flames of our faith and our devotion to you, because you are worthy. We pray this all in the name that's above every name, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, this is Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.